The scripture reading today is from Deuteronomy chapter 19, verses 1 through 15. Hear the word of the Lord. When the Lord your God has cut off the nations whose land the Lord your God is giving you, and you have dispossessed them and settled in their towns and in their houses, you shall set apart three cities in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. You shall calculate the distances and divide into three regions the land that the Lord your God gives you as a possession, so that any homicide can flee to one of them. Now this is the case of a homicide who might flee there and live. That is, someone who has killed another person unintentionally when the two had not been at enmity before. Suppose someone goes into the forest with another to cut wood, and when one of them swings the axe to cut down a tree, the head slips from the handle and strikes the other person who then dies. The killer may flee to one of these cities and live. But if the distance is too great, the avenger of blood in hot anger might pursue and overtake and put the killer to death although a death sentence was not deserved, since the two had not been at enmity before. Therefore, I command you, you shall set apart three cities. If the Lord your God enlarges your territory, as he swore to your ancestors, and he will give you all the land that he promised your ancestors to give you, provided you diligently observe this entire commandment, that I command you today, by loving the Lord your God and walking always in his ways. Then you shall add three more cities to these three, so that the blood of an innocent person may not be shed in the land that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, thereby bringing blood guilt upon you. But if someone at enmity with another lies in wait, and attacks and takes the life of that person and flees into one of these cities, then the elders of the killer city shall send to have the culprit taken from there and handed over to the avenger of blood to be put to death. Show no pity. You shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from Israel so that it may go well with you. You must not move your neighbor's boundary marker set up by former generations on the property that will be allotted to you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. A single witness shall not suffice to convict a person of any crime or wrongdoing in connection with any offense that may be committed. Only on the evidence of two or three witnesses shall a charge be sustained. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I want to share two brief uh, additional readings from Deuteronomy, this time in Deuteronomy 24 and at verse 19. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to it. It shall be left for the alien 
the orphan and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all your undertakings. When you beat your olive trees, do not strip what is left. It shall be for the alien, the orphan, and the widow. When you gather the grapes off your vineyard, do not glean what is left. It shall be for the alien, the orphan, and the widow. And then in Deuteronomy 5, a passage of Scripture we'll actually look at next uh, Sunday as we look at the Ten Commandments in the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, verse 12, the commandment about the Sabbath day. Observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work. You, or your son or your daughter, or your male or female slave, or your ox, or your donkey, or any of your livestock, or the resident alien in your towns so that your male and female slave may rest as well as you. Remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. This too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us bow before God in prayer. Let us pray. Almighty God, we give you thanks that you have called people to live together in community for countless generations, and that we are amongst those who have heard your call. We are glad that we can gather in our homes, but we are especially glad that when we can gather in person with each other, and pray that you'd lead us to the time in which we are all back together again. Guide our community, that we would hear a word from you day by day and week by week that would help us to grow and to become more and more ambassadors of your grace in this world. Through Jesus Christ, we pray. Bless your word to this end today. Amen. In our sermons throughout the summer, we're looking at what we call the books of Moses, the first five books of the whole of the Bible, the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And in my sermons this summer, and we've got various preachers, I'm focusing on the book from which we have just heard, the book of Deuteronomy. This is a book that many of you may have never opened, and some of you hearing the long passages today say, well, just as well, haven't opened this long book, reading all this stuff, but... Jesus read this book. He opened its pages, and when he was tempted by the devil in the desert, in the middle of nowhere, when he had no pocket Bible or his Bible on his cell phone as we might have, he memorized it. It was in his heart and his mind, and it lies behind much of his teaching. So this is a book that we need to pay some attention to. Deuteronomy is, in fact, rather like the last will and testament of Moses. So you've got the first four books of uh, the books of Moses, of what we call the Pentateuch, and then you've got this last one, Deuteronomy. And the whole book is a reminder to God's ancient people about how their life is to be lived when they enter the promised land, when they finally enter the promised land after years, 400 years of being slaves in Egypt. They've been liberated. They've been wandering around aimlessly for 40 years, and they're about to enter the promised land, and Moses is not going to be able to go with them 
His mission is over, but before they go, he gives them this charge. The way they are to behave, the way they are to live, not only individually but together, the structures that they are to build if they're to live together as God wants them to live in this new land to which God is leading them. And this charge includes significant teaching on the importance of justice. Significant teaching on the importance of justice and on the administration of justice and the structures that would enable the people of God to be a just community. In a sense, this should not take us by surprise. After all, their God is the God of the Exodus. Their God is the God who liberates people from bondage and oppression. Their God is the God who felt the pain of his people as they suffered in slavery in Egypt and sent Moses to be his ambassador, his hands and feet, to set the people free from the power of the king, the Pharaoh who was oppressing them. This is bedrock theology in the Bible and for the people of Israel from the very beginning. The God they believe in is a God who is passionate about justice. So in Deuteronomy 32, for example, we read this, the Lord is the rock, his works are perfect, and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. And the psalmist could echo these words in Psalm 11, the Lord is righteous, he loves justice. And Psalm 146, the maker of the heaven and the earth, the creator God of Genesis, upholds the cause of the oppressed. And then later on, the prophets, Isaiah and Micah, they add to this, the Lord Almighty will be exalted by his justice, says Isaiah. And then the passage with which we began our service a few moments ago, our call to worship from Micah. What does the Lord require of us? But to do justice and love kindness or mercy, the translation could go, either way, and to walk humbly with God, which means walk step in step with God. God is our mentor. If God has a passion, we must share it too if we are to walk together. And what is God's passion? God's passion is, among other things, for justice. So these are major themes in the Old Testament part of our Bible, the Scripture. Though some would say that this theme sort of disappears when we come to the New Testament, to the Gospels, and to the Epistles to be replaced by a, a passion for evangelism, a passion for bringing people into the kingdom of God, into the family of God, and into relationship with God made known in Jesus Christ. And in some ways, people who say that are right. There's no question that when we come to the New Testament, God's ancient people expand to include people like you and me, Gentiles, people from every ethnic background. And we have been sent by Jesus Christ to bring the world, as it were, into the family of God, to reconcile people to God, to bring them into an intimate relationship with God, which is empowering. The most empowering and disempowering things in our lives are our relationships with other people. Think of those that empower you, and think of those that weaken you and disempower you. Well, God wants a relationship with us that empowers us, and that's central to the New Testament, but none of that undermines what comes before in the pages of the Old Testament. Indeed, 
The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. The passion for justice is there in the New Testament and stretches right into the ministry of Jesus, though sometimes people slide by those passages of Scripture which indicate this. So Jesus, for example, in the fourth chapter of Luke's Gospel, begins his ministry by providing his mission statement. And the situation is this. He's in the synagogue in his hometown. It's a Sabbath day. And we read, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to Jesus, and then he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free. And to be sure, some of this is to be understood on a spiritual level. We are oppressed, we are captives, we are blind, we are poor spiritually, but that is not Luke's central point. Luke's central point is that this is literal, if not exclusively, at least it is literal in significant part. But in Luke chapter 11, Jesus doesn't mince his words, and it becomes absolutely clear. He's speaking to some of the religious leaders, and he says, Woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and herbs of all kinds. You pay attention, attention to the personal part of the religious life. But, he adds, you neglect justice and the love of God. And in Greek, when you have two phrases like that side by side, they tend to be parallel. They tend to mean the same thing. But you neglect, neglect justice and the love of God is the same as you ne neglect justice, which is the same as loving God. It is these you ought to practice without neglecting the others. In other words, for Jesus, it's not either or. It's both and. Both and. Personal piety. Pay attention to that. The call to sacrifice within our individual lives, our relationship with God, pay attention to that, but also pay attention to your public life, the manifestation of your faith in the public sphere as well. And this, this part of biblical faithfulness is precisely what Moses is trying to drive home to his people in the book of Deuteronomy and in our passages of Scripture today. Moses gives significant principles to follow and laws to make that spell out the parameters, the kind of issues of justice that God is interested in, was interested in then, is interested now, and is still interested in in our lives. God's passion for a just society. Let me actually put what we're reading in the context of what I said about three Sundays ago when I said some people don't read the Old Testament because there's so much blood and violence and gore in it, and there is. But what I said was something like this, that God has to speak to people in the culture in which they live. Otherwise, we'll never understand what God has to say, and every culture has its limitations. In a hundred years, people will look back at us and say, what were they thinking? How could God speak into that particular situation? Well, that's where we are, and in the humility of God, God speaks to us where we are, and future generations will always say, always, that's outrageous. That's going to happen. But what was the world like in the ancient Near East at that time? It was a dog-eat-dog -dog world. We see some of it in parts of the Middle East today. It was a dog-eat-dog -dog world and in other places around the world. 
And we're in horror at that, but it still exists to this day. Life was cheap. Terrorism, tribalism, war was rampant. And in the midst of this, in the midst of some of the awful things that happen, Moses speaks this word into that society where people were and says, where we can, let's break the cycle of terror. Where we can, let's choose another trajectory, another direction to go in. Let's create an island of justice, an island of justice in a broken world. However imperfectly, we have to make a start. And that's what God is doing with his people Israel in creating this people. That's what Moses charges them as they stand at the edge of the promised land and they're about to go in and he's saying, what kind of a community are you going to create when you get into this place? So let me give you four areas in which God is interested in developing communities of justice, four specifics that come out of Deuteronomy. So Deuteronomy chapter 24, you may find it helpful, by the way, to look at your sermon notes. For those watching, you can see some of these texts on the screen, but the sermon notes, I think, will help you at this point. So Deuteronomy 24 has to do with laws about providing a social safety net, social security, to what we call the law of gleaning. This is a law designed to protect the powerless and the immigrants from hunger. It's a law about hunger, which is there in the pages of Deuteronomy. Listen again, when you reap your harvest in your field, this is the world of agriculture, forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be left for the alien, the orphan, and the widow, the powerless in society. And the interesting reason is given, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all your undertakings. If you grab for everything, God is not going to bless you if you let it go. And doesn't that sound like the teaching of Jesus, the paradoxical teaching of Jesus? If you let it go, God will provide. God will provide. Take care of those and give them enough who have nothing and have no power. This was, in fact, the law on which a woman by the name of Ruth depended when she came to the land of Israel as a widow and as an immigrant, an alien. And a whole book in the Bible is given to her. She would not have survived had she not been able to glean and find food for her family. And in time, she then would marry, and she would become the great-grandmother of Israel's greatest king, King David, an ancestor of our own Lord Jesus, because of this law. Because of this law about hunger and protecting those who had no power. That is God's interest. And then Deuteronomy 5, from the Ten Commandments, Fifth Commandment about the Sabbath day. This is actually, in Deuteronomy, what we might call a labor law. A labor law built into the Fifth Commandment. There's a law against treating anyone, including animals and immigrants, as mere property and chattel. Not to do that. Observe the Sabbath day. Keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. We say, yes, I've heard that. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. Not many people hear that as a commandment, but it is a commandment to work. To work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work. That's a commandment too. But then what you have to notice is who else, who else is spoken to in this commandment? 
You shall not do any work, you, or your son or your daughter, that's your family, or your male or female slave, uh, modern terms would be uh, those who are our employees, your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock. Wow. In the agrarian societies, the, the power which drives the industry and the care of animals, or the resident alien, the immigrant, in your towns, so that your male and female slave may rest as well as you. Remember, you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Actually, this is not literally true. By this time, after 40 years, most of those who'd been slaves had died off. But Deuteronomy is written to preserve from generation to generation what God wants to do. So even those who weren't literally there to say, this is who I was. God picked me up when I was helpless. How dare I treat anyone else as if I have power, as Pharaoh had power over the people. But I'm to humble myself and remember that I was a slave in the land of Egypt. The Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. This is a law about labor relationships and about animal welfare and about treating others who are powerless well. It's for those who control the lives of others so that they treat others well. So there's a law about hunger and poverty. There's a law about labor relations, animal welfare. And then coming back to our passage in Deuteronomy 19, a long passage, uh, there are laws minimizing the perversion of justice, minimizing the perversion of justice. And these are based on the seventh and the eighth commandments about stealing and about not bearing false witness. So verse 14, you must not move your neighbor's boundary markers set up by former generations on the property that will be allotted to you in the land that the Lord your God is giving to you to possess. No surreptitious small print changing the rules and the regulations for others and taking what is not yours. Isn't that a game that is played so often in our society today? And Moses says, don't dare do that. And then a single witness, and this is so important, a single witness shall not suffice to convict a person of any crime or wrongdoing in connection with any offense that may be committed. Only on the evidence of two or three witnesses shall a charge be sustained. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not be callous or careless with your witness about somebody who may be punished because of what you say or do not say. Without incontrovertible proof, no condemnation. And many people forget that this is true of the death penalty in the Old Testament. People look at that and say, how cruel is that? Actually, it was never enforced on any information that was merely circumstantial. So you may or may not agree with it. But nevertheless, there were rules which said we will not make mistakes. And many of the changes in the laws of our states today are based on the fact that we have made countless mistakes when it comes to the implementation of the death penalty. Not bearing false witness, not perverting justice is huge in ancient Israel because God is a God who loves justice. And if you're in any doubt about that, then you just need to go on to read what Deuteronomy says about those who do bear false witness. 
If a malicious witness comes forward to accuse someone of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days, and the judges shall make a thorough inquiry. If the witness is a false witness, having testified falsely against another, then you shall do to the false witness just as the false witness has meant to do to the other. You play games with justice, and God treats that seriously. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. What's the greatest evil? The perversion of justice. The rest shall hear and be afraid, and a crime such as this shall never again be committed among you. Show no pity to those who would treat justice lightly. And that's where we come to one of the most famous laws in the Old Testament that people shake their head, heads at, which says, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. And we say, what do we do with that? Well, we read it in context. And the context of these words right here is in the perversion of justice. If you cause somebody's eye to be taken out because of your false witness, you're going to suffer the same. It is not merely vindictiveness. It is a way of saying, you will uphold justice for all. Don't dare play games with justice as every generation is prone to do. For God takes it with the utmost seriousness at all costs. Play games with it, then you need to feel the pain that you have caused. So Moses gives these laws to minimize the perversion of justice, to regulate the abuse of labor, to provide food for the powerless and the hungry, and then finally... There's even a law which protects the guilty. Even a law which protects the guilty and ensures that the guilty get justice. So you're innocent until proven guilty. Want to know where that comes from? It's our biblical heritage. That's where it comes from. Our whole reading, which did seem long, I know that, is a reading about preserving justice for people who have committed murder. They have killed somebody, but unintentionally, or at least that's what they claim, and God builds into the society of Israel the time they need for other people to investigate and make sure that what they did was not intentional murder, but manslaughter. Think about it for a minute. It's a dog-eat-dog world. And yet they're already beginning to climb out of that world to make distinctions between one kind of taking of life and another. So they build into the society what we call the six cities of refuge. And you can see this on the map that's in your insert, or I think it's coming up on the screen just now. And they are scattered throughout the land so that anybody can get to those particular cities. And when the population grows... Moses says, change the locations, add locations. Enable anybody to receive this justice. As time goes by and the demographics change, make sure you keep this in place. It's powerful for all, not just for us or our kind, but for all. Back in 2009, Rich Stearns, the retired president of World Vision, not just the largest Christian humanitarian organization in the world, but the largest humanitarian organization of any kind in the world, spoke about his awakening to this theme of biblical justice. 
he wrote a book called A Hole in the Gospel. And he said that there was something that he had missed for decades as he read the Bible. Even when he was reading the Gospels, he said he missed it. And then the lights began to go on as he read the whole of the Bible together and realized that the Old Testament underlies so much of what Jesus teaches. So Rich Stearns points to Matthew chapter 25 where Jesus affirms the basic steps of all acts of justice. He reminds people on the top of society to notice those who are not where we are. And that's where justice begins, to notice and to pay attention to those who are not where we are. Matthew 25 is familiar to many of us. I just want to read the second part of it, where Jesus is speaking about the judgment and the separating of the sheep and the goats. And he says to the goats, depart from me, for I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you did not welcome me. I was naked, you gave me no clothing. By the way, when he says you didn't do it to me, he's saying, Generally, we treat these other people as if they're of no significance, but we have to imbue those people with the significance of Jesus, as if they were Jesus. I was sick, and you did not take care of me. I was in prison, and you did not visit me. And then Jesus adds, what you did not do to the least of these, you did not do to me. So Rich Stearns writes about this passage. He says, all too often, we either cut these words out of our Bible, leaving a hole in the gospel, he says, or he says... We silently change the words to make them fit what we really want to think about them. We kind of let them disappear. He says, I don't want to let them disappear, so I'm going to retranslate this passage in my own words. He says, think about it this way so that it sinks in. For I was hungry while you had all you needed. We do. I was thirsty, but you had plenty water to drink, including bottled water. I think I've got some right here. I was a stranger, and you wanted me deported. I needed clothes, but you added more and more clothes to your closet. I was sick, and you pointed out the behaviors that led to my sickness. I was in prison, and you said I was getting what I deserved. So I know that our world is massively complex, and I suspect we may have all kinds of questions to ask about what Rich Stearns and others have to say. But what I'd like you to remember from today is just this, that the world of Moses and the world of Jesus, their worlds were complex as well. Yet what they do is set a direction, set a trajectory, which gets us out of where we are to a better place. A trajectory that gets us out of where we are to a better place. They're interested, of course, in the private life, spiritual life, Christian life. Absolutely. Without that, we're lost. But when the private is there, the public must follow. And this, too, is a message which goes through the whole of the Bible. The God of the Bible, according to the psalmist, is the Lord who loves justice. And what are we required to do? To do justice, and to love kindness and mercy, and to walk humbly with our God, with our God, side by side 
with God, step in step with God. God sets the direction, and we allow our lives to move in God's direction. And God's direction is the direction of justice. Let us pray. Holy God, look down upon us. We are sometimes consumed with just the everyday business of life that we can't get out of ourselves. And we know you care for us in those moments. Give us strength, though, to deal with our lives day by day, but also to reach out beyond ourselves as individuals and as a church to play our part in the world that you love and to which you sent your Son. In his name we ask this. Amen.